This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This is a closer look at Tyler Cowen. He's the Holbert L. Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason University and the director of the Mercatus Center. He is also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Foreign Policy Magazine recently named him one of its top 100 global thinkers. He's an author whose last book, The Great Stagnation, was a New York Times bestseller. He's here today to talk about his new book, Big Business, a love letter to an American anti-hero. He says that our only problem is that we don't love business enough. He joins me now for a closer look. Thinking of corporations as the bad guys has been going on in this country for a long time, especially since 2008. What put you over the edge and made you want to defend American business with this book and this passion? I've been seeing the rhetoric from both left-wing and right-wing. So with the presidency of Donald Trump, you have someone who claims he's very pro-business, but you look at actual issues such as trade or immigration or just general predictability and reliance on expertise. I think he's actually fairly anti-business, or he's only pro-business if business is on his side. Coming from the left wing, you have Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, a lot of talk about the word socialism, uh, blaming corporations for every economic or social problem out there. So I thought it was time for an updating of the case for business. Did your research for the book surprise you in any way about the good and bad of American-style business? Well, one thing that surprised me is I looked at data on whether businesses are more honest than just individuals. And I thought the answer would come out that businesses are much more honest. And actually, businesses and individuals seem roughly to be about equally honest, from what I can tell. There may be a slight edge for businesses because of the commercial incentives to maintain brand names. Uh, but I thought that would be a lopsided comparison, and it wasn't. You wrote that uh, Stanford economist Nicholas Bloom compared management practices in the major economies and discovered that American business comes out on top. What is it that we do differently to be up there? The mix of trust and autonomy in the American workplace, I think, comes out as a, a critically important element that people are able to delegate authority and there's often freedom to implement or suggest new ideas because there's enough trust in people that the idea then gets some currency. It's a very fragile cultural mix, but we in this country seem to have it. In uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren's recent Wall Street Journal op-ed piece, she writes, traditionally, corporations sought to succeed in the marketplace, but they also recognized their obligations to employees, customers, and the community. In recent decades, they stopped in favor of a singular devotion to enriching shareholders. What do you think of that? I don't think that's changed very much over time. I think businesses today do a lot to give people jobs, to give them safe and creative workplace environments, uh, sometimes to lead social movements, such as for rights for same-sex partnerships. Uh, 
I'm not saying businesses always do the right thing, but there wasn't a golden age when American business was somehow noble and today it's fallen. Uh, business does have a mission of making money uh, that is very often but not always compatible with the social good. Now you write that big business is recent human creation dating in America from the 19th century. And you say further that our emotions have not evolved to evaluate it accurately. What does that mean? Well, if you think of us as human beings, we evolved in some earlier environment when there was hardly any wealth. There weren't businesses in general, if you think about hunter-gatherer society. And we're basically the same beings. And then you come along and it's the 1890s and you have big railroad companies and big oil companies. Uh, we don't quite know what to make of them. And we start thinking about them as people and judging them as people. And I argue in the book that's fundamentally a mistake. We, we shouldn't think of businesses so much as like people. If we do, they'll always disappoint us. You write that another way to test honesty in business is to compare not profits with for profits. What have you found through that technique? If you look, for instance, at hospitals, there are both for-profit and non-profit hospitals. It's very difficult to find a significant difference between those two forms. The non-profits are not somehow better run or more noble or saving more lives. I think that's an, an indication commercial incentives are not in general so corrupting. I think there is one sector where the for-profits are much worse. That's higher education. Uh, but in general, if you compare businesses to less business-like entities, I think you will find the businesses on average are not more crooked. And in many cases, they're more honest. Take online dating. Who's more honest with you, Match.com or the people who are posting profiles on the site? I think it's pretty obvious that it's Match.com. You write that, uh, yes, businesses act badly, there's fraud, but you write, I would be hard-pressed to find a big business that lies to me as much as my friends, family, and associates do. That's a pretty uh, extreme statement and says something about uh, your friends and family. Oh, I don't think it does. I think uh, if you take half-truths to be lies to get through the day, uh, people in all kinds of social interactions, they bend or shape the truth or how it's presented. It's very common. It's very common amongst workers in the workplace. You spend a whole chapter disputing the idea that CEOs are paid too much. Your first point is that the current CEO role goes way beyond just running the day-to-day -day business. Tell me about that. Well, these days you need to do much more with government relations. You need to do public relations. You may need to do social media. You probably have to know much more about the global economy. You may need to manage a global supply chain. Uh, it's much harder than just running the business in the old narrow sense. And uh, the demand for that role has gone up. And the supply, uh, really good candidates, are tougher to find. So the pay for them has gone up in turn. How monopolistic do you think American big business is in 2019? I think we need to look at it sector by sector. What I found to be the most monopolistic sector in terms of being an actual problem was actually hospitals and health care. Uh, I think that is a national crisis, and it's driving some of the affordability problem. But I think in most areas, if you think about this as a consumer, you have never had more choice 
for what to buy, from whom to buy it, where to buy it, what you can get, your chance to buy abroad. So I don't think we have a general problem of monopoly today. Referring to a paragraph that you had in the book where you call mobile internet uh, an addiction. Well, some people might be addicted to it. A lot of people use it very well and very productively. But I think especially with younger people, and there's some evidence, especially for younger women, uh, it's not always good for us how much we use it. Where did you find significant levels of monopoly and pricing power? In which industries? Uh, again, I think hospitals and healthcare, where prices are rarely transparent, they are the worst offenders. But overall, the biggest monopoly in America is public education, K through 12. And uh, that monopoly, I would say, is not receiving enough criticism. There, most families really do not have very much choice. I, I think that's, that's largely true. That's an important point. Now, everyone on the right and the left thinks that they want to break up Facebook, Amazon, and Google. But you defend the big tech companies. Why is that? Well, each of those companies is a very different case. But in general, they have lowered prices and given us more choice. I would also stress those companies break down other monopolies elsewhere. So a lot of small businesses will advertise, say, on Facebook. They can't afford to advertise on TV or radio. And that helps them get started or compete better with larger businesses. So Facebook on net is actually an anti-monopoly force. Now, in that connection, you do have a complaint about Facebook, since it's your belief that it's not elevating the quality of news consumed by the public. Is there a remedy for this? Well, the simplest remedy, if you're unhappy with Facebook, is to spend less time on it. Uh, subscribe to Bloomberg, New York Times, uh, many other outlets, some of which, of course, do pop up on Facebook. But I think you have found in all eras, people consume a lot of bad news. It was especially true for television. Today, cable news is a much bigger political problem than Facebook, in my view, in terms of increasing polarization. Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, recently urged the world's governments to regulate social networks. Specifically, he wants them to protect the public from harmful content. Do you think uh, that's his job or some other government agency? Well, I'm very much a First Amendment absolutist, so I don't want governments restricting what, say, Internet platforms can post or connect us to. I would like to see those companies behave responsibly, in some cases more responsibly than they have in the past, but I don't want governments to have authority there. What about all the data the big tech companies have collected on all of us, and now facial recognition. Who should be protecting our data privacy and personal privacy? Or is that an old economy notion? Well, I would start with this point. The biggest <clears throat> threats to your privacy usually are people you know, friends, acquaintances, gossips, colleagues at work. And people hardly seem very worried about that. So if, if privacy is really what we're going after, I would start there. Say the files kept on you by Facebook very rarely have led to cases where people's actual lives and reputations have been ruined. So to me, that's pretty low down on the list of privacy problems. Uh, facial recognition, I do have a lot of qualms about. I would consider uh, limiting that by law. Eliminating it totally? 
totally is a strong word, uh, but in a lot of public spaces where there is not a safety issue, I don't want to see us move toward widespread facial recognition as they do in China, and I would be willing to pass laws toward that end. Now, you write about some myths about Wall Street that you'd like to dispel. First of all, you dispute that short-termism is a big problem with Wall Street and business. What do you mean by that? Well, Amazon has taken a very long-term perspective and reinvested profits. Uh, the share price has been very high. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that corporations, on average, seem to get it about right. You know, half the time they're too short-term and half the time they're too long-term. But that actually means, on average, uh, they're doing their best to maximize long-term value. That's what a share price reflects. And if you think that all the other traders are too short-term, well, you can go along and buy the shares they're neglecting and do very, very well for yourself. I, I agree with that notion. You go on to write that the American system of venture capital is the envy of the world. Why is this, do you think, unique to the United States? I think we have one part of the country, obviously the Bay Area, where the network effects and the expertise and the history of doing startups is so strong that so many people want to cluster there, and that is a self-perpetuating phenomenon, even though the rent is now too high. And the only country that's come at all close to that is Israel. In your chapter on equity markets and Wall Street, you write, in essence, you can think of America as the world's largest and most successful hedge fund. Well, the United States has a lot of multinational activity abroad, and those companies are earning fairly high returns by globalizing, which is a good thing. Indirectly, you can think of the country as a whole as funding this venture by running high levels of debt. But our government can borrow at pretty low interest rates, and the country as a whole is a kind of levered hedge fund that involves some risk. Uh, but essentially, we're making money on those investments, borrowing from the world at a whole, at you know, basically a zero rate, and then earning something on it abroad. Are the big banks being broken up, in essence, by all the personal finance apps that are providing banking payments and investment services? Uh, I don't see the big banks being broken up or going away anytime soon, but virtually all Americans have a lot of choice when it comes to banking. And I live in suburban Virginia. There are easily you know, 10 banks I could choose here, and they would all service my needs. I think there's some problem in inner cities, but for the most part, banking services is a pretty competitive market. Uh, recently, Jamie Dimon commented that even with the stock market highs and low unemployment, 40% of Americans don't have $400 to deal with unexpected expenses. 28 million Americans don't have medical insurance. Simply put, the social needs of far too many of our citizens are not being met. Business is doing great. Why aren't most people feeling it? There's a few points I would make. First, those numbers have been disputed. Most Americans do have access to more cash than that, in my opinion, if only through, say, family, friends, and church. Uh, second, I do think the savings rate should be higher than it is. I don't blame that on business. Uh, third, 
We have passed Obamacare, which is an imperfect law, but it has covered many more Americans and will cover many millions more once the Medicaid expansion works through the entire country. So we're addressing that problem. Uh, so my perspective is more optimistic. And in general, CEOs have a tendency to try to say conciliatory things to look humane, but often what they say isn't exactly true. Senator Warren has a new proposal that corporate executives who negligently oversee a giant company committing massive scams that cheat, defraud, and steal, causing harm to American families, would face jail time. Is it time for legal accountability? Isn't this part of the reason that people hate big business? Well, companies are already legally accountable. But keep this in mind. There is such a tangle of regulations. They are so numerous and so complex that no one person, no one lawyer, no one company knows what all of them are. So invariably, any large corporation at any point in time is probably breaking some of those laws. So in essence, you make every CEO a kind of automatic felon where it's only up to the discretion of the government whom they can throw in jail. So I consider that a very dangerous proposal. Uh, but that noted, there are certainly some environmental laws we should enforce more strictly under current law. You also write that the basic idea that big business is pulling the strings in government isn't really true. But every day we read about the revolving door between industry and the agencies that regulate them, and over $3 billion spent on lobbying. So what's the real story? Well, there clearly are some areas where big business has a significant say and too large a say. Uh, policies toward pharmaceuticals, excess profits for defense contractors, regulations that benefit some companies at the expense of others, some tariffs. But if you look at our government as a whole, that is not most of what our government does. Most of what our government does is transfer money and support old people and run Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and defense spending and pay interest on the debt. And for the most part, those largest of programs are driven by what voters want. I think that's somewhat simplistic in that I've seen personally in Washington the impact of political contributions on outcomes. And there's hardly a situation with the use of a sufficient amount of funds that you can't impact the outcome. That's just the culture of politics in this country today. Well, look at Donald Trump. He became president and not by outspending his opponents. You've been doing a blog for 15 years, and you say that the restaurant recommendations are your most popular posts. How'd you start doing this, and how was the ethnic food scene in Washington? I live in Northern Virginia, which has much better ethnic food than Washington, D.C. Uh, we're much more cosmopolitan and more diverse. And I just started keeping personal notes a long time ago, over 30 years ago. And eventually I started putting those up on the Internet, and then it morphed into a blog. So I have about 130 pages single-spaced notes on local area restaurants, and it's very useful to me, and I have a lot of readers. What are your two favorite restaurants in the D.C.? 
community? Uh, right now, one would be Mama Chang in Fairfax, which is food from the Chinese province of Henan. And another would be Elephant Jumps, which is Thai food, mostly Bangkok style. I see you seem to prefer Asian food. I think on average it's better. French and Italian food in their respective countries are amazing, but they don't translate as well here. And you need to pay large sums of money to get good French food in, say, New York City or Los Angeles. And you can get an amazing Chinese meal for 12 or $13 in the suburbs, Rockville or Fairfax or Falls Church. So, you know, why go the continental route? In your travel blog post about visiting the historic city of Ghent, you write that, most of all, you should walk around and ponder why we seem unable to build such compelling cities these days. Tell me about that. Most contemporary cities seem to me either ugly or mediocre. Some of that may be the fault of the automobile. They're mostly built to accommodate cars. Ghent is gorgeous. Right now, we're building some incredible individual buildings. But to think of a new city sprung from nothing, that's amazing. Uh, Brasilia is one example I can think of, but there are very, very few others. And I fear there are certain kinds of beauty that right now we are close to, perhaps also in music. To me, that's a great shame. I don't know how to fix it. Tom Nichols, who wrote The Death of Expertise, says that people take too much for granted all the great advances, thanks to corporations, the mobile internet connects us to everything and everyone. Would you agree that perhaps there is so much prosperity we can't see it clearly? Uh, yes, just the mobile internet and being connected to so much of the world's information within seconds. Uh, it's quite recent. The iPhone is you know, just a bit, a bit over 10 years ago. And we now treat it as if it's you know, a God-given right and uh, we're criticizing it. And to me, it's one of mankind's greatest achievements. Why then are there so many younger people skeptical about capitalism? I think a lot of younger people are conflicted. They've grown up in a time when the labor market often has been weaker. Uh, there's a certain amount of disillusionment. The pace of technological change other than the Internet has often been quite slow. And I don't think that many young people actually believe in socialism, but calling themselves socialist is a way of dissenting or just saying they don't like how things are going. Uh, to me, that's very concerning. Uh, I would rather they think more in terms of making capitalism work better, companies being more innovative, uh, the pace of change accelerating, so that if New York City needs to build a new subway line, it doesn't take almost 50 years. Do you believe that robust regulation is good for business. Robust is a tricky word. As you define it, it virtually sounds good automatically. Uh, I think most areas of American business are regulated too much. I think we have some that are regulated too little. Uh, climate emissions would be the major example. Finance, I don't think, should be regulated more, but in some ways the regulations should be tougher and simpler. Uh, but too many things, if you want to build something, or if you want to cross state lines and keep on working in a given occupation, I think our country is just far too regulated in most areas. Do you think that holds true for cryptocurrency? I think cryptocurrency is in very rapid flux. 
I would prefer that to remain unregulated for now. There are plenty of scams and ripoffs, but the people being ripped off, you know, they're not the proverbial orphans and grandmothers. Uh, they're basically nerdy geeks who uh, are, are losing some money. And I don't think that we even know how to regulate the sector, what it should look like. So I would say leave it unregulated. Huge majorities of people want universal background checks for guns, immigration reform, and climate change action. So why isn't the government as responsive to its customers as big business is? Again, it depends on the area, but if you take guns, the people who are opposed to gun control seem to me to be much more intense in their preferences than the people who want more gun control. So they will vote on guns as an issue, and politicians are afraid of them. You're right that big business is just getting started being vital to our lives. How much more will we depend on big business in the future? Well, we're probably going to move to self-driving cars at some point, and that will be done by the private sector. So we will be trusting businesses to ferry us around and indeed have a complete record of our movements. Uh, that does make me somewhat nervous. I think on net it will be a big positive, uh, but I think people are right to be worried in some regards. And uh, our government is in some ways gridlocked and unable to solve a lot of problems, and we're seeing people innovate by having more business. So if, you know, Medicare doesn't work as well as you would like, you have a concierge service with a doctor, you pay extra on the side, uh, that's good for you, that's fine, but it's also a sign that in some ways our system's a bit broken. He's an economist at Foreign Policy magazine, recently named as one of its top 100 global thinkers. And he's a best-selling author whose new book is Big Business, A Love Letter to an Anti-Hero. Bert Malkiel says of his book, in this world where capitalism and big business are under attack from both the right and the left, Cowan's reasoned and compelling defense of free markets provides a much needed antidote. If you want more Tyler Cowan, he contributes daily to his award-winning blog, The Marginal Revolution, and he has a very popular online ethnic dining guide for the Washington, D.C. area. Tyler Cowan, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter, at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levin.